When is an oral history of five Los Angeles families not a book about Hollywood? Maria Russo will talk about her review of Jean Stein's new book, West of Eden. What's really fun in in this book is being able to see how all of those 20th century California fortunes really came from somewhere else. What good are critics? The Times chief movie critic, A.O. Scott, will join us to talk about his first book, Better Living Through Criticism. How do you tell somebody who can't listen to the song right now what the, what it's like to hear the song? How, how do you convey what is happening in a movie, what the quality of an actor's performance is? This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Maria Russo is here now to talk about her review on the cover this week of Gene Stein's West of Eden, an American place. Maria, thanks for being here. Hi. So everyone here probably knows Maria Russo as our children's books editor, but she is also a critic of fully-fledged grown-up, <laughs> grown-up literature. Um, tell us a little bit about this book. Well, this book is an oral history, which is such an interesting genre, just a collection of edited and curated interviews. It's by Jean Stein, who also, her, her first really popular oral history was called Edie, American Girl, published in 1982. That book really kind of rocked the nation, I think. When I was in college, I remember being obsessed with it. It was the history, the story of someone named Edie Sedgwick, who you might uh, remember as one of Andy Warhol's It Girls. Uh, but a she, factory girl. Right. There's a movie made about her starring um, Sienna Miller. But her story is much bigger than just the Andy Warhol year. She came from an old New England family, rich and nutty. (laughs) The book kind of looked at the way her whole family's history kind of led inexorably to this kind of tragic end. Several of her siblings also died. She died of an overdose at 28. So, um, so, So I think what she was trying to do there is take this one small story and shine a light on sort of bigger American themes. And in this book, West of Eden... She's pulling the camera back even farther and looking at five stories, five families, all of them kind of centered in Los Angeles, a lot of Hollywood, but it's not a Hollywood book. And it's not really a book about Los Angeles. It's a book about how these kind of five stories, these five families over the course of the 20th century can show us some really destructive and fascinating and kind of riveting, entertaining stories about American, how American life goes, kind of the, the dark corners of the American dream. And she also, she, she widens the camera, but also it's more intimate in that one of the families is her own family. It's true. That's kind of one of the most interesting things about this book. I mean, it's, a, it's an odd, it's very original, I'll say, um, how she does the oral history here. because So there are five families. It starts with the Doheny's. You might remember, you know, Edward Doheny, the kind of oil baron who... Um, in the 1920s was ensnared in that Teapot Dome bribery scandal. And um, there was a murder-suicide in his family, one of his children. Um, Then it goes on to Jack Warner, one of the Warner Brothers founders, his family, the family of the actress Jennifer Jones that kind of, she kind of married into several different pockets of wealth that you can kind of see over the course of her life. The producer David Selznick was one, and then she ended up with the industrialist Norton Simon, founder of the Norton Simon Museum, now one of the you know biggest art museums on the West Coast in Pasadena. So she, so her life kind of shows you a lot about Los Angeles history. Then she finds this kind of odd story that no, I'm sure many people have, no one has heard of, a girl named Jane Garland who was and who was 
uh, an heir as her father was a real estate, you know, made a lot of money in so real estate. this is estate. the fourth family? This yeah, the, the Garland. one is the Garland, okay. right. And nobody there ever really became famous. But, of course, in that milieu, there's lots of, like, little cameos by famous people here and there who happen to be neighbors. She, unfortunately, um, suffered from schizophrenia and... Her psychiatrist tried this very unusual treatment where she he, he kind of brought young men in to live with her and and kind of simulate normal life and it kind of goes goes horribly wrong and and um, that story is kind of riveting and and strange and disturbing and then the final story is Jean Stein's own family her father was Jules Stein who was one of the founders of the big of MCA, which is kind of everything from talent agency to start started out as a booking agency, eventually become kind of a production company. So he's uh, one of the one of the many stories here of someone who came from nothing, mm-hmm. from the Midwest, a Jewish family, comes to Hollywood and kind of rises to the top. Jean Stein herself so, so grows up in Hollywood in one of these amazing mansions, kind of a storybook childhood, but underneath there's all kinds of you know ugliness and pain and you know her mother drinks way too much and they're kind of moving her around and putting her on display a lot so the final uh, section of the book is her kind of grappling with her own childhood her own difficult memories of her parents but also telling their you know the amazing story of her father mm-hmm. and her father's rise and you kind of see these things side by side and I think it shows you a lot about you know the American dream and it's a lot of the same themes as Edie um, in that it looks at celebrity it looks at mental illness the rise and fall of families the kind of as you said the elusive and ephemeral American dream it's true I mean I think I see these books as kind of you know bookends almost you know they they also show a she lot she probably of... must have seen that you know wanted that parallel to be made with her I, subtitles I so. an yeah, American right. Girl Edie and an American Right. This is an American place. And I think it's also a lot about the East Coast and the West Coast and the kind of shuttling back and forth that the upper classes kind of do between those two places as places that each offer a different version of, you know, status and excitement, but they kind of feed off each other, you know, Mm -hmm. and you can kind of fail in one place and go to the other place and, and be picked up. And then it's, you know, in her life, too, she's someone who has kind of gone, you know, she also has came east and became the editor of Grand Street magazine and a kind of important, you know, East Coast literary figure in her own right after this Hollywood childhood. The first book she wrote or edited um, with George Plimpton, and this book, right. obviously, she did alone. George Plimpton is, is dead. Do you know anything? Do we, the reader, know anything about, you know, did they start this book together? Was this always her own project? I don't see any evidence um that he was involved in this one at all. And in some ways, you know, I think it makes you look back at Edie and really see Plimpton's um, fingerprints on it. You know, it was a lot about the patrician New England family Mm -hmm. in Edie that, you know, uh, you know, Edie seems like it's more focused because it's only about one person. But when I looked back at Edie after not having read it for a couple of decades, I realized there's a lot of side trips there, too, you know, into Sedgwick family history. They're all about, I mean, both books, they're about the various centers of sort of power and privilege in America, whether it's that New England patrician, that sort of Boston-centric, or New York and downtown, um, and then Los Angeles, obviously, Hollywood. Right. And I really, what's really fun in, in this book is 
being able to see how all of those 20th century California fortunes really came from somewhere else, you know, and were able to go there and have this kind of blank slate, you know, and be kind of unencumbered by what you see in Edie, which is this family that, you know, the the burial, the Sedgwick burial plot is this big contested thing, like who gets to go in the Sedgwick? Yeah, it's kind of like a Budenbrooksian kind of story of decline and and decay. Right. Whereas in the West Coast, it's just, it's, you know, everything's up for grabs. There's no you know, rules almost. And the this, but you know, the, the tragedies are much more kind of maybe sort of far flung would be like the children of the wealthy players in West of Eden. It's just that for me was the most striking pattern. They just almost half of them end up dead and having these really difficult lives. And that's always the dark side of the American dream is what, well, what, what about the next generation, you know? Let's talk about oral history for a minute, because I think it's it's one of those um, literary forms. It's kind of like the Jackson Pollock um, of, of literary forms in that people look at it from the outside. And, you know, with Jackson Pollock, they see a splattering of painting and think, oh, I could do that. Right. That looks easy. And and this is, um, you know, the form is is block quotes, basically, right. from various Other people, people that, talking. And so what is the art in that? So it's, first of all, it's a lot, it takes a lot of time. This book was, seems to be, you know, over 25 years in the making. Um, you've got to do the interviews first and sit there, you know, listening to people. And, and that uh, takes a lot of time. And, and then it's all in the editing, you know, the cutting down of what people say, the finding of that one moment in a two-hour interview, that one paragraph that is the essence of of the person's story. You've got to be a great interviewer to be able to elicit. So you've got to elicit the the great material. You've got to edit it down to its essence. And then there's a lot of sort of assembling of a narrative because she tells stories like, for example, the story of the Red Scare, we kind of follow chronologically from the early Um, rumblings to the stories of people whose lives and careers are completely destroyed and Jack Warner himself having to go before Congress and denounce his own studio. And, you know, you can really follow chronologically, even though every page or so it's someone else talking. And so that is really difficult to find people giving the right information at the right moment. And Mm -hmm. so she kind of cuts back and forth often between people telling the same story, but it's for chronological reasons. And you got to know. Other than the prologue, which is brief, there's no kind of grounding material. It's not like she says, well, now I'm introducing so-and-so and and he's going to say X, Y, and Z. Or then after that, this happened. And some of that is the fun of reading it, I think, because you find yourself kind of playing detective and, you know, she'll stick in a telegram or a news report or a personal, you know, letter. At one point she puts in um, an unpublished autobiography or biography of, of her father that is, you know, kind of comically um, exaggerated or whitewashed, let's say, that you kind of have to read alongside people telling their version of the truth. Mm-hmm. Some of the fun of it is that you are you are forced to make the links yourself and figure out, well, what do, what, what do I think really happened? Like, for example, in the chapter on the Doheny family, there was this murder-suicide. Uh, it involved... Edward Doheny's son, Ned, his only child, Ned's chauffeur, chauffeur, man about town who did everything for him. The way that the story went down in history, and if you look at Wikipedia, this is how it's recorded, is that the chauffeur... But don't look at Wikipedia. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the chauffeur shot Ned, but she's got all these people saying, no, very clearly it was Ned who shot the chauffeur. And It's like this Rashomon kind uh, of... Yeah, uh, and so you, you know, you'll have to decide for yourself who you think did it. 
there's a lot of gossip. And that, that's what she's trying to do is say this is what you get if you talk to people. This is, she's not trying to, to present one story that's the unified story. Somehow, in my mind at least, I, I formed a unified story. <laughs> but through all of these different ingredients that she puts together, something in my mind said, I have a picture of what life was like at this time for these people. I have a picture of you know, this particular situation or this person's psychology. I could, you know, you, you're able to do that because she involves, because there's a lot of gossip. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you know, you read gossip and you, you kind of know, oh, well, that person has a grudge. Or, or you think, you know, that person has a grudge, but maybe they're right. Maria, you're a born and bred New Yorker. Obviously, you live here now, um, but you spent 10 years in L.A. um, as an editor at the L.A. Times, as a freelance writer, as the editor-in-chief of Pasadena Magazine. So you know contemporary California. Did this add to your kind of understanding of the city as it is today? It really has very little to do with current Los Angeles and what the city is becoming, you know, what the city, Hollywood now, you don't have the same kind of power structure you had then where, you know, five or 10 men controlled everything and had these vast empires under their control. It's much more um, fragmented and and, you know, for example, TV is is just as hot as movies now in Hollywood. The hierarchies have changed. So first of all, the view of Hollywood you get is old Hollywood. But also just Los Angeles itself. This is a very, very white world. It's like in, the Hail Caesar uh, yeah. world. Yeah, you're kind of looking there. at this. And Los Angeles today, you know, is, is a white minority city. There's not um, the same power concentrated in the hands of of Hollywood, for, for one thing, and just of white people. You know, what's vibrant and exciting in Los Angeles now is coming from, you know, the Asian community and certainly the Mexican and Latino community. It's almost like a period piece, but I think she gives you these little hints here and there of what's happening, of what happened to Los Angeles after this. When you you realize, like at the at the, the her very her parting interview is kind of interesting. It's one of the um, security guards at the ho- the home that used to belong to her parents that was bought by Rupert Murdoch, and he's basically saying, "Man, nothing ever happens up here. I don't know why they even need security." <laughs> And you realize, you know, what this place that seemed like the center of the universe, it's just not what's happening in in Los Angeles anymore. It's not where the excitement is. So there's all these other parts of Los Angeles life that are equally compelling. Like um, people are really interested in, you know, the the L.A. River and how to survive post-drought Los Angeles and California in general. And there's just a lot of kind of interest in sustainable living. And it's urgent. It's, you know, it's it's kind of what people you know, have to do. And it's created a lot of, you know, ingenuity and and interesting new ideas in Los Angeles. And I, I would say people talk about that sort of you know, people these days are more interested in kind of the coyotes than in, you know, the, the celebrities. The ghosts of, of L.A. Past. Right. Well, at least fascinatingly told um, in Gene Stein's new book. The book, again, is West of Eden, an American Place. And Maria Russo, our children's book editor, reviews it this week on the cover. Maria, thank you so much. Thanks, Pamela. Tony Scott, known to readers as A.O. Scott, joins us now to talk about his new book, Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth. Tony, thanks for being here. Very nice to be here. I want to know how to think about art, pleasure, beauty, and truth. Um, So I'm going to follow up on those things. But I want to start um, first just generally talking to you about your job here as a critic. How do you get to be a critic? 
I'm sure you get asked that at like every single talk that you give. In my own case, I was always interested um, really from the time I was a, a kid in in various art forms, in movies, in, in books, in, in music, and in criticism. I read a lot of, of reviews of all of those things. Um, after an unhappy detour through through academia, I kind of I started writing book reviews um, and really enjoying that and finding that it was a kind of writing that I had a knack for and that was very fulfilling. It gave me a chance to to say things I wanted to say and explore ideas I was interested in in a form that was very congenial. And then the opportunity came somewhat surprisingly at the New York Times to to write about movies, something I hadn't done before. And uh, I guess the short answer is just is is you know trust dumb luck and the questionable decisions of other people. So you were always doing books before you came to the Times, and I was doing books, and I I was doing some other art stuff too. I, I did a lot of writing um, in the in the year or so before I came to the Times for Slate. Um, I had a regular book review column at New York Newsday in in their in their wonderful book supplement um, in those days in the late nineties. Um, and for Slate, I was writing kind of a lot on a lot of different cultural and even not cultural. Um, topics. And, you did a lot um, of back and forths, too. Right? Yeah, there was a lot of back and forth. There was the sort of the model then of the kind of the book clubs and the movie clubs and, and, and these sort of discussion features. Uh, but I was also writing a column that was called The Assessment. The idea was it was a critical profile of somebody in the news. Um, and sometimes those were political figures or, or newsmakers of a traditional sort. But I, I like to do it most about cultural figures. So I, I did one um, in the fall of 1999 about Martin Scorsese, um, and I'd always wanted to write about film, and I was interested in him. And I kind of poured everything I had, all of all of my unexpressed film critical thoughts and urges and opinions, into that piece, which uh, was published just when the Times had started looking for new film critics, and and I think caught the eye of of Bill Keller and Joel Elliveld, who were running the paper at that time, who had the completely absurd idea that I could write movie reviews for the Times and persisted in that belief uh, in the face of, of, of common sense and, and, and good judgment. And I'll, I'll always be grateful to them for that. And when they when you got that call, did you initially think like, wait, movies? No, I'm a, I'm a book person. Well, I, I mean, I got, a, I got a call from John Darton, who was the culture editor, um, asking me to lunch. And I went and had lunch. And, and as happens sometimes with the New York Times, it was a very long and pleasant lunch during which we talked about everything else. You know, my life, what I was reading, my family, my education. And then at the very end, he said, well, we're, we're looking for to hire some new film critics and maybe you'd want to be considered for this. And I thought, well, that's... You know, that that seems kind of out of the blue and random. On the other hand, I wasn't going to say, no, forget it. I don't want to do that. Right. I don't <laughs> want to have to watch those movies yes, and write yes. about them. I don't want to be a, a, a full-time critic for the New York Times um, writing about film. So I thought, well, let's see. Uh, I wrote some audition pieces. I kind of um, worked my way. I had been a, a, a lifelong, passionate moviegoer, so I felt like I could could probably figure out how to do it. Um, Did you have that initial trepidation? Like, who am I to criticize? Who am I to write knowledgeably about movies? Or did you kind of... I have that trepidation till this, to, to this day. You know, I've, 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 I've <laughs> who am I to judge the latest for, Disney movie? For the last 17 years, you know, and that's, that's part of the fun of it is that you don't... Uh, there's no license. There's no exam. There's no ordination. You just you just step out and, and, and do it. And um, pretty quickly... Uh, your readers and, and your editors and, and the world will tell you um, if you're doing it wrong. I'm assuming you get that all the time. Like, who are you to judge? How would you know? What do you know that, you know, everyone else on Twitter doesn't know? And what's your response? Well, the book 
partly comes as a response to that. And, and it's a very, in a way, complicated and meandering response, which is that I'm not any different from anybody else. I mean, I'm a person who goes to, to the movies just like everybody else. And there are certainly people out there um, on Twitter and social media who know a lot more about movies uh, than I do and, and, and who, are, who are just as qualified to judge them. So the, the critic is always, always a person in the world, always a person who has interests and, and curiosities and you know, should also have, have a certain amount of knowledge and expertise and, and intelligence and, and writing ability. But in a way... Our job is to to organize and extend a conversation about movies or about books or music or dance or whatever it is that's going to happen anyway to kind of to give a to be a, a nodal point in this large chaotic um, conversation that's happening all around us all the time. You know, it also seems uh, from the outside like a lot of fun. Um, at the Times, um, the book review is here on the on the fourth floor and right next to my office in the midst of all of us while we're toiling over piles of books is the wine critic. And everyone looks <laughs> at the wine critic, you know, surrounded by uh, bottles of wine. And there he is in there, you know, taking little sips of wine. And we think like, that's work. <laughs> and I imagine that you get that all the time. Like, you, don't you just go to the movies all the time? Isn't that super fun? What What's so hard about that? It is fun, but there's also no question that it's work. You know that that I, that I have to go whether I want to or not, and um, and and to see movies that that I wouldn't necessarily choose to see. One one thing that I realized when I started the job that kind of is obvious, but was nonetheless sort of surprising, is that for my whole previous movie going life, I'd only ever seen movies that I wanted to see. Right. And all of a sudden I had to see movies and, and think about movies and have an opinion about movies that I didn't want to see. And there and there are there are a lot of them. Um, and it can feel like a grind. It can feel like a routine. It can feel like a job. But it also has enormous pleasures built into it, which is that a lot of the time or enough of the time, the movies are really interesting or really good or really surprising and give me a lot to think about and, and send me back to my desk to write with with ideas buzzing around in my head and 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 emotions you know kind of coursing through my bloodstream and and I get to write about it I I, I get to not only the, the fun is not only that I get to go to the movies all the time but that they give me an endless array of subjects to write about and and that's a great thing I mean as as a writer not to have to go very far necessarily in search of inspiration or or subjects or or ideas. Um, and how does it work? You you have a co-chief critic here at the paper, Manola Dargas. Do you two sort of each, you know, sit down and say like, I want to see this, this, and this, and she says, Well, I want to see that, 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 and also, you know, also, and you kind of. We, well, we have a system worked out that is that has worked remarkably well for um, for now going on twelve years that we've we've shared the title of of, of chief critic, um, which is very simple based on sound nursery school principles of taking turns every week. We get a list of the movies that are coming out in mm-hmm. a given week, and we take turns picking first. We look we look down the list, and it's my turn. It's her her turn. Within that, we also take turns if there are important filmmakers or if there's a you know, a series with a lot of sequels or um, that we want to alternate on. So, you know, I did Inside Lewin Davis, so it was her turn for the Coen she Brothers. She gets the next so, Coen Brothers. So, so she did Hail Caesar. And and we keep to that. And then we also try at, at times of year, um, you know, in October, November, and December, when a lot of very important, ambitious, attention-getting movies are kind of bunching up into those weeks, 
we try to keep an even balance then, so so one person isn't always hogging the the, the front of the section or the center of the homepage. We're getting um, all the Fast and Furiouses. Yeah, exactly, and and it works out. The, the thing is, there there are enough movies, and um, there's such a variety of movies, and also there are other occasions to write about it. So if if one of us who hasn't reviewed the movie has some something really that they want to say um, about it, there are uh, opportunities in you know in arts and leisure um, in essays or critics' notebooks um, where we can come back at things. Um, do you look around at other critics and, and, you know, take the wine critic I referred to earlier or a classic music critic or a TV critic and think, like, we're all sort of part of the same kind of gang. We're all doing the same thing. Absolutely. Um, and this book is very cross-disciplinary in that way. There's not really a lot about movies in this book. There's probably more about poetry and, and painting than about um, movies, partly because just in the history of criticism, that's where a lot of the the interesting stuff um, can be found. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do regard us as a, as a tribe. I mean, a somewhat antisocial tribe. A lot of us never come to the office um, and we don't, we don't necessarily see each other or, or hang out. But there is a sense, you know, in, in, in this, this newspaper that is, is full of all different kinds of journalists, um, criticism is its particular form, its particular genre. And, it's important to feel like there are other people around who understand it the way you do, who are kind of doing the same thing. I mean, there sometimes, you know, at the newspaper, you do encounter people from the from the real news or the hard news sections <laughs> who are just like, what, you know, what is it that you do? You, right. You just like you sit around and think and you just go on your own opinions. And it's a it is a very strange form of journalism, but it is a form of journalism and an important one. And it's good to have. Um, to have that solidarity. I remember uh, when I was starting off as a film critic, just doing freelance stuff for The Economist, and then went to like a real news organization, and I handed in my first story, and my editor said, "Who did you interview?" And I said, "Oh, I didn't. I didn't talk to anyone else. It's all just my opinion." And it, you know, it was quite quite an education. Do you read? critics in those other, you know, art forums? Do you read the jazz critics and, and sort of learn new things and new ways to describe? Oh, absolutely. What? I like to read critics even who write about stuff that I don't know anything about or, or don't necessarily even care about. I mean, one of my absolute favorite critics to read, um, not at the paper, at a rival publication, is, is Alex Ross, the classical music critic at The New Yorker. Um and I really am a total Philistine when it comes to classical music. You know, like I, there are a few Mozart or Beethoven things that I sometimes listen to, but, but I could never, you know, endure a whole Wagner opera. But I could read him, um, or I could read Tony Tomasini with great pleasure and and learn a lot just from, from the quality of their writing and and from their insights. So I do that a lot, and and I'm always interested in the challenge when you're writing about art forms like dance um, or art or music or film to some degree that that have a large non-verbal or non-narrative element right. how do you, how do you find, find words? words how do you, I, how do you totally. how do you tell somebody who can't listen to the song right now what this what it's like to hear the song how how do you convey what is happening in a movie what the quality of an actor's performance is and I'm always trying to to learn how to do that better and and to see 
you know, what I can steal from from my talented colleagues. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They're very good with metaphor and also with just, you know, avoiding the cliches and the adjectives because you could just right. fall back so many times on the same word to Yes, you could. And that's one of the traps um, when you're when you're writing criticism is is right is is just to sort of fall into to lazy thinking and lazy description and just throw adjectives at, at something. But I, I do think one of the, the essential jobs of criticism is is description that an accurate description of of a work of art or a or a film or whatever um, will bring you very close to an accurate judgment of it that mm-hmm. is if you if you get the description right your evaluation, your your judgment, your argument will in a way follow from that. But I would imagine that one of the traps that you have to avoid as much as, as we try to avoid here with books is not just giving a book report or a movie report, right. not just telling what happened, not giving it away. Is right. that something you think about a lot? Yeah, it is something you think about. And there and and there's a lot of spoiler sensitivity in the in the movie world now and in T V writing and, and anyone who's who's dealing with um, any kind of narrative form has to be very careful um, not to get out ahead of of the people who are going to see it or or, or read it um, afterwards. You have to do more than just summarize or just describe. And and one of the things that you have to do, or or one of the ways for me to avoid that, is to always come back to my own experience. The thing that I know about, the thing I can be sure of, in a way, is what happened to me. I went and saw this movie, and and I thought certain things about it. I felt a certain way. I was bored. I was moved. I was frustrated. I was confused. If I can start from that and and in a way turn that into something, into an argument, into something that will be useful and interesting to somebody else, that isn't just a, a kind of subjective like, well, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I cried. Yeah, I laughed. Um, but tries to get at why that happened and what that was like, then that's how, for me, you get beyond just the the recitation of plot points or the or the kind of um, checking off the checklist of, of, of different formal qualities. Is there like a guiding question that drives what you do with each piece of criticism? Like, I am trying to answer whether this is worthwhile, or I'm trying to answer the question of, you know, why should you care about this, the, the, the potential viewer? Or... For me, I think it has changed. Uh, and now I find myself very often asking the question, what is this for? <laughs> you know, like, right. what is this doing? Who are they talking to? I'm, I'm very interested in how movies address their audiences, who they imagine their audiences to be, how, how they, they appeal to an imagined or assumed audience. So, and that's partly because I, I realize, or I, I've maybe grown to realize as I've, I've gotten older, that there are movies that are not necessarily for me. Mm-hmm. Um, not just me as a critic, but, you know, me as a person of my age, background, um, beliefs, prejudices, whatever. But I'm very interested in those movies anyway. And, and to think about, well, who are these movies for? How are they speaking to that audience? How are they also maybe speaking to me? How can I kind of imagine myself into the position of, let's say, the 13-year-old girl who's watching the Twilight movie. Like, what what would that experience be like? What would that movie mean to her? What is that movie saying to her? Do you feel like film criticism has gotten harder in that there's such a glut of content out there and the, the business itself is so ruthless in terms of how, you know, opening weekend and how long things stay in the theater and how few, you know, theaters there even are. That question of like, ultimately, like, is this worth your the investment of your time and and was it worth the money used to create this? Is that more of a? It is. It is harder, and and I think it's it's harder not just because of the glut of films, but because of the the there are so many 
competing demands on our attention. I mean, all of us, um, professional critics or not, have only so much time and attention and consciousness to give to the books, the television shows. I mean, you you can very easily and quickly feel overwhelmed um, and, and this kind of guilt-stricken paralysis of like, oh my God, you know, I haven't caught up with, with, with the new season of The Americans. We're all behind on Transparent. TV. We're all behind on TV. Uh, and, and, and we're only going to get more behind because there's more and more of it. And then there's also movies and, and books and have you, you know, oh my God, I missed the, the Super Bowl halftime show and that's the thing everybody's right. talking about. So that puts a burden on, on or, or, or kind of gives an extra duty to critics to try it's not possible for any critics to actually see it all and sort through it. Um, I mean, you know this from from the books. It's not as if you can read all the books that are published and say, well, these five. You kind of have to go through hunches. You have to do a kind of, 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 of triage. Um, I think what a critic is very often nowadays is, is a companion, someone who is like a lot walking alongside you and maybe a little bit ahead of you kind of trying – to navigate this abundance, this glut, all of this stuff, and to find the things that might might have value, it might, and the value might just be that it's fun for mm-hmm. half an hour. I mean, I, I don't, I don't always want to sort of put everything on on the highest pedestal of art. I mean, you know, you can, I can watch a, a, an episode of Broad City five times and 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 feel feel quite fulfilled. content and, and, <laughs> and, and fulfilled. But on the other hand, you know, there 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 also might be. Um, a movie out there uh, somewhere that that isn't getting. I mean, recently there was this incredible Romanian western called Aferim, You know, which I, I don't know if it. I barely got onto a to a screen, but you know, you want to hope that you can sort of grab people's uh, you know buttonhole people and say, hey, hey. If you're going to see one Romanian film this year, this is this is the one. Actually, there are two. There's, I mean, The Treasure is also really good. I mean, Romania. No, I'm you're a- only allowed one. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> It's interesting because there are a couple of ways, I guess, to to think about a given piece of film criticism that you're either trying to help someone decide whether to see it on the one hand, but also thinking of the writing in and of itself. Like this is this piece of writing should be entertaining or interesting or insightful in and of itself, never mind whether you're thinking about seeing the movie or not. Exactly. And and those two things um, go together. And that's that's the fun and the challenge in a way is is, yes, you want to give someone some useful, you want to perform a useful service, uh, provide some consumer advice. And that's important. You know, this is a daily newspaper and, and, and that section comes out on Friday morning and the movie opens Friday afternoon and people want to know what to do with their, with their time and their money. And they're, and they're looking to us for, for some help and, um, and we can't let them down. But they also are maybe just looking for something to read for 15 minutes on the subway that will provoke or amuse or delight them. And, you also, I also want to develop over time a relationship with readers so mm-hmm. that they'll come back. You are, in my opinion, uh, a master of this form. You've done these movie reviews for years now. How different, you know, how different is writing a book from doing that? I mean, it's a totally different format. I often find like, yeah. you know, you have people who are columnists and they're great at being a columnist for an 800 word column. And then it was it was very hard. And, and, and I I. I would find sometimes that I would wake up um, in in the morning to sit, to sit down to work on the book and think think about it the same way that I would think about um, a piece in the paper. That is, you know, I I can write if if I have to on deadline like a two thousand word piece, you know, by lunchtime. <laughs> I was thinking when I was first signed up to do the book and and it had you know the contract said sixty thousand words and I was like, oh, that's right. If I write two thousand words a day, you know, I'll be done in three <laughs> right. months. Right, I'll just sit down <laughs> no and do problem. it. No problem. It doesn't work that way at all. It's so much 
slower and so much more like, you know, building a huge city out of tiny Legos um, because you have to get, I I found I had to get every piece more or less right before I could move on to the other one. But it was also a lot of fun because, I mean, I, I wrote it on the side. I didn't, I didn't take time off. So I, I, would, I would kind of get up early in the morning or I'd work on the well, weekends. You did that 4.30 a.m. thing? Yeah, yeah. But I would also find that because it was about what I was doing anyway, um, because criticism was, was on my mind during my, my regular working week, that even when there were periods when I had to put the book aside because things were very busy, it was Oscar time or it was film festival season or whatever, I could always come back to it and, and, and pick it up again because it, it, was, it wasn't conceptually, it wasn't in terms of the content all that different from, from what I was doing anyway. And I really also liked the different rhythm of it, that I could, that I could pick it up on, on a Sunday and work, work on it all Sunday. And... Um, and also that it took me down these other paths and and back into things that I had thought about, you know, years before that that I hadn't really um, engaged with before. So there's a lot of poetry in this book because I, I um, had studied and written about and, and thought about poetry quite a lot before I came to the time. So to be able to write about that um, was fun. To be forced um, to read philosophy and to think about philosophical questions, which which doesn't come naturally, but was was a great challenge and a great exercise. Madagascar, too, doesn't bring you to those <laughs> uh, those issues. Well, that, that brings us back to the subtitle, the art, pleasure, beauty, and truth aspect. Tony, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. The book, again, is Better Living Through Criticism by A.O. Scott. This is John Williams, and I'm joined by Parl Sagal, who has bestseller news sitting in for Greg Coles this week. Hi, Parl. Hey, John. What's new on the list? Well, three new books on hardcover fiction. At number 14, it's The Wolves by Alex Berenson, the 10th book in the series featuring the former CIA agent John Wells, who's setting out to kill an American billionaire who's trying to trick the U.S. into invading Iran. At number four, it's Find Her by Lisa Gardner. Uh, in which the Boston detective now tries to hunt down a missing woman who's been abused and now is turning vigilante. And at number one, Pierce Brown's conclusion to his Red Rising trilogy, which is sort of a book about interstellar civil war, sort of reaches its fairly violent and exciting, I would imagine, conclusion. Sound like very dramatic plots on the list this week. Yeah, people are really, you know, reading for some thrills. This, and what about uh, nonfiction as thrilling? Uh, in a different way, in a different way, a little <laughs> bit more grim. Um, at number 12, we have And Then All Hell Broke Loose by Richard Engel, which is his memoir of 20 years of reporting out of the Middle East from fresh-faced Stanford grad to becoming the chief foreign correspondent uh, for NBC, and including, as I'm sure some listeners will remember, being kidnapped in 2012 and held in Syria for five days. Mm-hmm. Um, and at number eight, somewhat more mutedly, but exciting in a different way, is uh, Jhumpa Lahiri's first nonfiction book and first book in Italian, In Other Words. Uh, and this is an interesting book, and it's sort of been getting a lot of attention because it's, you know, she's doing something we don't really see people do often, which is, you know, write in a language that's totally not her own. And, you know, Lahiri, of course, is the author of four works of fiction and, you know, very celebrated and acclaimed. And in this book, she talks about rather mysteriously being drawn to Italian and moving to Rome, reading and writing exclusively in the language. And you know, finding that it sort of allowed her to experiment again and to f- feel anonymous and to shuck off some of, you know, success's trappings. So. And am I right that there are facing pages and that the Italian and the English are both in the book? That's right. She wrote it in Italian and it was translated by the venerable Anne Goldstein, who's Elena Ferrante's translator. Yeah, among many others. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's one more? 
There is, at number five, Turning the Tables by the Italian-American Teresa Judice and Casey Barker. Uh, Judice is, of course, the real housewife of New Jersey and who is recently released from prison. And sort of in her book, is it's a different kind of memoir, sort of reflecting on what she's learned, including reading the fine print, she says. <laughs> <laughs> So someone's learning Italian and someone else is learning to read the fine print. All kinds of lessons. All kinds of how-to books on the list this week. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, John. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.